Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to another edition of the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. I'm very happy to have with me today a very special guest, Dr. Paul Offit. When it comes to children's health, vaccines, immunology, I mean, you name it, he is one of the national experts. Paul Offit will join us in a moment on the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. The Dr. Brian McDonough Show. Hello, it's Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to the Dr. Brian McDonough Show. And first of all, Dr. Offit, thank you for taking time. I know your schedule is incredibly busy. I appreciate it. My pleasure. We've known each other for a long time. We have. Um, one of my favorite stories, I tell it often, is um, for those who may know or may not know, um, Dr. Offit is, is a leader in the world of vaccines and vaccine developments and thoughts about them. And he developed a rotavirus vaccine. And I remember in the Gosh, early 1990s, I was on the Today Show talking about rotavirus and how concerning it was as an issue. And I knew a little bit about him developing the vaccine. And when it came out, it was developed. And on um, the radio station I work for in Philadelphia, KYW News Radio, I talked about this new vaccine, which was given a name. It was a rotavirus vaccine, and it was spelled R-O-T-A-T-E-Q. And I went, there's a new vaccine. It's called Rotate-Q. Rotate-Q. I always remember, I got a call, you, you said it's Rotatech, and I think I asked him, are you sure? And you're like, well, I invented it. And I always remember that, like, what a stupid question. But the fact that you took time, you know, to avoid me that embarrassment, because I'd never heard it spoken. Uh, you know, early, I mean, that's relatively early in your career. That's, how does it feel to, first of all, do something like that, have that kind of impact on um, generations now um, of helping them? It's got to be a great feeling. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with Doctors Stanley Plotkin, Plotkin and Fred Clark to do that. I mean, it was a 25-year effort. Rotaviruses kill um, more babies um, in the world every day than any other infectious disease. So this vaccine, with developed up with that team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, probably saves uh, hundreds of lives every day. It's certainly the professional accomplishment of which I'm most proud. And I mean, I could read your credentials, you know, now for the next half hour um, and, and not stop. But what I always remember is seeing you in gyms, coaching kids, working with your children over the years and, and doing the normal things, which tells me a lot about you, too, that, you know, there's more to life than medicine and you're aware of many of these other things. And that's kind of what I wanted to have you on this show. There's a lot of people right now who have children under the age of five who are very concerned because... There is no vaccine. Uh, they might have a two-month-old baby at home, or they're wondering, where do I go? Because they don't have any protection. Let's talk about that group first. The group, first of all, I know on February 15th, they'll be talking about this. But right now, they don't have uh, the ability to have a vaccine. How safe are they? What risk are they? What are you seeing? Well, certainly, uh, while it's true that um, children who are less than five get infected generally less frequently, and when they're infected, they're infected less severely, they can be infected um, and infected severely. So I think we do need a safe and effective vaccine for that age group. I'm on the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee. We'll be meeting on February 15th to discuss those data. I mean, what I'll tell you is it's a three-dose vaccine. 
But the data that we're going to be considering on February 15th is just the data they found after two doses. So uh, we'll see what it looks like. I mean, if the vaccine can stand alone for now, pending a third dose, as something that's clearly safe and clearly effective after two doses, then fine. But if not, then I think we, you know, we may have to wait for another couple months until they finish the three-dose trial. And, you know, that's one of the things I see, I, you know, I obviously in my role in the news, even more in my role as a physician, I, I watch a lot of the panels when they stream and when they talk. There's a great deal of discussion and thought and evidence. And I don't know if the general public really is aware. I mean, it isn't just a bunch of people getting together with drug companies saying, hey, this is a good product. Let's market it. It is literally looking at studies, life and death. And um, have you been surprised by... Uh, the outcry about the COVID vaccine and the reluctance. I mean, I, I shared my story, you know, being in the front lines, being there. I was so thankful I didn't have to sleep in the basement and get dressed in the garage and do all those things. And I had a sense of security. But so many people didn't feel that way. And it actually did catch me by surprise. Yeah, you know, I, I think skepticism is, is reasonable. I think you should be skeptical of anything you put into your body. But once the, the, the studies have shown that something is safe and effective, once that now millions and hundreds of millions and frankly billions of people have been immunized with the vaccine, which now is largely is arguably the largest vaccine uh, trial in in humankind. I mean, we have more people who've been vaccinated with this vaccine than arguably any other. Um, then you should believe the data. And what's frustrating for me, just as a pediatrician, is that you have since May a vaccine that has been available for 12 to 15-year-old children, but only about 55% are immunized. You have since November a vaccine that's available for 5 to 11-year-old children, but only 20% have been immunized. And I suspect that if there is a vaccine available soon for the less than 5-year-old, um, that even fewer than 20% will be immunized. So I think if you look at the group that's it, it, least likely to be immunized in this country, it's people less than 30. And, you know, we still see, you know, a lot of this disease and a lot of suffering and hospitalization and ICU admissions and deaths. I, I was on service uh, a few weeks ago. We admitted about 18 children to the hospital with COVID. Um, all but one were over five years of age and none of them were vaccinated. None of their parents were vaccinated. None of their siblings were vaccinated. It was just really hard to watch. Yeah, it is. And it's it's hard to see people at, later say they wish they had done something and, and question it. But getting back to the kids, um, and obviously, as in your work in pediatric infectious diseases is, is noteworthy and, and you spent a career in it. If we if we go with the children five and under now, let's assume they don't get vaccinated or the vaccine's not approved. And that is not, it's just an assumption for when we're talking right now. What is the safest way to protect a child that's not vaccinated? We'll put a moat around them. In other words, just make sure that everybody with whom they come in contact to the degree that you can is vaccinated. Um, if it, you know, it, it, and certainly um, indoors, if the child is indoors, you know, that, that with people who you may not know, make sure that everybody wears a mask. Um, it's hard, obviously, for a very young child to wear a mask, say a one-year-old or so. But you know, make sure that everybody else is wearing a mask, so that at least you can protect by putting a moat around them. It's the same way that we, we think about people who are severely immune compromised for whom a vaccine wouldn't work. You try and make sure that all those with whom they come in contact are, are extremely unlikely to be shedding virus. And there are a lot of parents now, probably because it may have been the point where things were getting a little better with COVID, who have two, three, four, five months old. We've seen a, kind of more of a little bit of boom in that area. Children under six months of age, are they at particular risk? Do they have mom's antibodies? If mom's vaccinated, how does it work? 
Right. So, so women certainly who, when they're pregnant, are asked to be vaccinated, and if or before they're vaccinated. But yeah, so so when you're when you're vaccinated, you'll develop something called immunoglobulin G in your circulation, which you will then, as a mother, passively transfer transplacentally to your baby. Um, the half life of that passively transferred antibodies is about 25 days. But you know, if you have a high amount of functional antibodies, you can really protect the child for that first six to nine months of life. So sure, I, I passively transferred antibodies do work. I mean, that's why monoclonal antibodies work. So you essentially, for that child, you put a moat around them. They've got a degree of protection from mom if mom's been vaccinated. That's helpful. And and you kind of just hope and wait for a vaccine. Would a vaccine, if, I mean, again, they're going to look at it. Are they looking at particular age groups um, when they begin? I know we vaccinate kids at two, four, six months, you know, hepatitis B earlier. What, what about this type of vaccine? When would it be introduced or is that yet to be determined? That's yet to be determined. I, I do think, though, that we're going to need a high level of population immunity for as long as this virus is circulating, which I think will be for years, if not longer. I mean, think about it. We vaccinate children every year in this country for polio or against polio, even though we haven't had a case of polio in this country since the 1970s. We do it because polio still exists in the world. And if we let our guard down and polio comes back into this country, you know, again, we'll be at risk. So I think this virus may fall into the same category. I, so I think I, if I had to predict, I would predict that it would eventually become a routine childhood vaccine. And when we talk about vaccines, I mean, there always was a movement in the country, so-called, quote-unquote, anti-vaxxers, others who had concern. I know you particularly have looked at those who had claimed there was a link to autism, and you, you've scientifically shot that down, and yet things persist. How do you deal with it? I mean, you know what these things can do, but how do you deal with it? I mean, my approach has just been talk to each person one at a time as I see them and just try to understand where they're coming from. But from a public health standpoint, from a large standpoint, how do you deal with it? Well, you try and get good information out there and try and present that information in an emotional way and in a compassionate way, in a passionate way. I mean, you can never leave the science. So you have to have the science out there that, that, that you know, refutes some of these ill-founded fears that are out there about this, uh, this vaccine or this disease. And so, um, you just do the best you can to get information out there, realizing there's a certain percentage of the population that no matter how logical you are, or how reasoned you are, you're not going to convince. There's an old line by Neil deGrasse Tyson that I like, which is if someone reaches a conclusion without using logic or reason, logic or reason isn't going to talk them out of it. Dr. Paul Offit is my guest. Dr. Paul Offit, where he sees patients, he's at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Um, and has been doing this for a while as a leader. And I'm, there's probably a degree, probably a degree of notoriety you don't want, but obviously you've been called upon by so many news outlets and so many to talk about this. How have you seen, you know, the talk show world, the news and things from a, both of us have kicked around for a while, how it's changed over the years and concerns about misinformation, good information. What do you do? Who do you trust? Actually, I think it's gotten better. I mean, if you look sort of 20 years ago with the birth of the notion, the ill-founded notion that the combination measles, mumps, rubella vaccine caused autism. I mean, around that time, you know, the anti-vaccine activists um, were really sought out by the media as kind of the one-stop shop to get the parents' point of view, even though they, they didn't represent most parents. I mean, you had anti-vaccine activists really that were on the uh, CDC advisory committees, and you there were on the FDA vaccine advisory committees. I mean, and so they, they, I think the media celebrated them in some ways. I think Congress in some ways celebrated them. That's not true anymore. I think they have been really marginalized. And so 
And so they become in many ways louder and meaner and more vituperative. And so, but, and so their, their platform right now is social media. And that's where, that's where they do their most damage. And I know this program, for instance, is on social media as well. It's another distribution. Just about every station will put their programs on social media. There, there's no checks and balances to an extent. Um, I have always been a big fan with no checks and balances because you want people to speak freely. But at certain points, there does seem to be danger with some of the views that people express and others who might believe it. And I guess you're just saying the way you counteract it is just with good information. Right. I mean, you know, what's the old line is, I guess, the Oliver Wendell Holmes line is you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater because you put others at risk. Well, you can argue that there are the kind of misinformation that's out there um, does put people at risk. You know, when, when people question whether or not misinformation can kill, of course it kills. Just just talk to people who are in the intensive care unit and ask, say, adults and ask them why they chose not to get vaccinated. And I think many of them tell you the sort of ill-founded fears they can find on social media or on, on mainstream media. So um, it's, it's a fight. Um, uh, and but you know you just got to keep fighting the fight. I want to be respectful of Dr. Offit's time, but I do have a couple more questions. One of our recent guests on the Dr. Brian McDonough show was um, Ireland's ambassador to the United States, uh, Dan Mulhall, and Dan Mulhall was talking about James Joyce, and he was on really to celebrate the hundredth anniversary of the release of Ulysses. And and when we were talking, you know, one of the quotes from Ulysses comes up, or actually from James Joyce, actually comes up that mistakes essentially are the portal of learning. And I know I've destroyed his quote. He said it much more eloquently, but, but essentially you make mistakes and you learn from them. You know, in your career in health, we've all, we all know that we've learned, whether it's somebody, a doctor teaching you and telling you we were wrong or somebody catching a mistake or you hope you make your own mistake, you learn and you get better. Part of the thing with COVID that I, I wonder if people are struggling with is we are learning. And we're learning as we go. And I get it all the time. You know, you told me early on this. You told me on early on that. And I was like, well, we were going with the knowledge at the time. Um, is that a concept maybe that we haven't done a good job communicating to people? I think it's hard. I, I think um, people want to believe that you need that you know everything that you need to know right now, right now. I think if you ask people, do you think we're going to know more about science and medicine 100 years from now than we know now, I think everybody would say yes. But when it comes to their disease, or in this case, this pandemic, they want you to believe you know, know everything you need to know. We're intolerant of that, that sort of learning curve, but there's always a learning curve. I mean, that's just Always try. Actually, recently wrote a, wrote a book called "You Bet Your Life," um, from uh, blood transfusions to mass vaccination, the long, risky history of medical innovation. But I sort of go through every major medical innovation, sort of nine big ones, to make the point that that there's always a human price to pay for knowledge. And as much as we'd like to believe it's not true, it's always true. People think, "All right, you know, I'll just wait till the learning curve's over," but it's pretty much never over. The other thing I wanted to talk a little bit about is the theory that, and you kind of alluded to it, that. Um, COVID may become like the flu. In other words, we'll have vaccines, we'll have treatments, and those treatments could be easier to get. Um, and people don't get, I mean, they naturally get concerned about the flu, but we don't, you know, go to the store and worry about the flu. Um, COVID has taken a big toll on people. Do you think it will get to the level of the flu as the way people think? Will it be more normalized as we move forward? Yes. I mean, if you look sort of two years before the this pandemic started, there were roughly 700,000 uh, hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths 
that year. The year, year before the pandemic, there were about 400,000 hospitalizations from flu and 20,000 deaths. I think we're going to get to those numbers here too. I just don't know what those numbers of hospitalizations and numbers of deaths are going to be where we say, you know what, I, I think we're just going to have to learn to live with this. But we, I think we will get to that number eventually. And I think, I think when that happens, that's when you go from pandemic to endemic, meaning that it doesn't really change your life. That's really the definition of the difference between those two things. And as we move forward, are you optimistic? I mean, I'm starting to feel more optimistic as we get closer to the spring. And by the way, I do want to say the one thing about this program, which I love, is that it stays out there and people can watch it at any time. And the people just seem to, you know, they glom onto these shows and they see it, which is fantastic. But one of the downsides is we are recording this on February 3rd. So what, what we're saying now in July, you know, again, can be quite different. But looking forward kind of into the future, knowing what you know, are you optimistic about the spring and summer? I am. I should sort of offer the caveat that I'm a Philadelphia Eagles season ticket holder. So you should put that in, in context. But, but what I would say is right now, if you look at people, if you add up sort of natural infection or plus immunization or both, we probably have about 90% population immunity. I mean, natural infection also does protect against moderate to severe disease. So, so that's good. That in combination with the fact that we're heading into warmer months, also is good. For the most part, this is a winter virus. So I do think that as we head into spring and summer, I would be surprised if we didn't have a dramatic drop in, in hospitalizations and, and, uh, and deaths. And then we'll see where we are as we head into October, November next year as to the degree to which this virus rages back. And, and, and that could all change if there's a variant that is resistant to vaccine-induced immunity in terms of protection against serious disease. Right now, that hasn't happened. I mean, all four variants that have come into this country um, have been susceptible to protection by vaccines as far as serious disease is concerned. That hasn't changed yet. Hopefully it'll never change, but we need to be on the lookout for that. And the other question I want to ask you, you mentioned you were on the service and you, you were dealing with you know, some of the devastation of COVID uh, on, in addition to everything else. Because you were on the service and because you're so entwined with medicine today, talk a little bit about the fatigue of those in healthcare and how this has impacted healthcare. Uh, because it's it's been a couple years and it's been ups and downs and mostly downs. No, it's hard. It was really hard at the beginning, you know, as we were dealing with this unusual virus. I mean, it's a respiratory virus that, that, like influenza, for example, causes pneumonia, but it causes much more than that. I mean, you know, this so-called multi-system inflammatory disease of children that we see in our hospital, it's not just the, the lungs that are involved, it's also the, the heart, the liver, the kidneys. And you watch these children suffer and occasionally severely, and it's, it's really hard. What's gotten much harder, actually, over time is that when a vaccine is available and then people still choose not to vaccinate or don't mask or don't protect themselves or their children, then it's really hard because, you know, you're, you, you end up spending a lot of time and effort reasonably on trying to take care of all this. Um, it really does in many ways overwhelm the healthcare system and, and makes it more difficult than to take care of all these other patients. And in a situation where this could have much better been alleviated, as, as has been true in many other countries, with just a larger percentage of the population that chose, chose to vaccinate themselves. So that's what's made it harder over time. Second to last question, any pills on the horizon? I know there's some out there. Do, do you see them as effective as tools we can use? Do you see changes with them over time? 
But in terms of COVID, I mean, certainly Paxlovid as, a, as an early therapy is, is a value. Maldopinavir looks to be a little less of value. Um, but again, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So prevention is always better. Although it's interesting how people seem to be, who, who aren't vaccinated, often seem to be perfectly willing to take drugs that don't work. I mean, like hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. Um, hopefully these drugs like Paxlovid will be something they'll be willing to take. But again, you can prevent it all. It's much better to, to prevent something than to try and treat it. You know, I, I was talking to my colleagues that we're almost beginning to take the approach. We're trying to that it, it, we took it so personally when people wouldn't get the vaccine reference. We, we knew what could happen, but it's almost become like telling your patients not to smoke or to wear bike helmets or to do those things. If they don't, you're at a point where you give it all you got and then you, you can't keep beating yourself up. And, and that's frustrating because, like you said, you see what happens if people don't do that little bit of prevention, especially when it's available. My final question, I asked you a lot. What didn't I ask you? What do you want to talk about? Anything we have an audience like, um, I know you get many opportunities, but that you could talk to. Is there anything you want to bring up? No, just that I think that, that um, hang in there. I really do think for the next few weeks, while we're still in the winter months, um, it could be rough, but I, I think we are right on the verge of turning the corner. So for the moment, Certainly vaccinate yourself. And at least if you're indoors, you know, wear a mask for the next few weeks until things lighten up. And then when they lighten up, I think this would be much better as we head to spring and summer. Hang in there for a few weeks. I really do think there's a light at the end of this tunnel. Dr. Paul Offit may be a genius. You can read about everything he's done, but sadly, he still remains a Philadelphia Eagles fan, despite how intelligent he might be. But that shows we all we all like our degree of pain, <laughs> maybe get some joy out of it. And Dr. Offit, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Brian. Take care.